I think we learned through trial and error that it's really, I think a mix is the best thing, especially as they're younger, because younger kids, girls, especially they're going to, they want to play with a friend. They want to play with a buddy. And I, I believe that there has to be a little bit of common ground between them. But as they get older and it becomes more of a profession or a sport, something we're doing, then they start thinking, oh, I want to win. And if this mm. person's my friend, but I'm not going to win with them, maybe I need to go in a different direction. So I think having that head coach, you know, I think Jose Loyola is in that that role now. I think for him, you know, communicating with the athletes and just sitting down and, and saying, mean, this is what we started doing later in the process is we, you know, get our top eight kids and then say, all right, if you were selected to go internationally, tell us your top three and who are they oh. and why? And then we take that into account. And is there anyone that you will not play with? And that's actually something that I've done at every college I've been at too, is like, let's hear, because we can write on paper what our best lineup is, but if they really don't want to play with someone and they're not going to f- work for that person, then it's not the best lineup. Mark Burrick here at Better at Beach. We collect and distribute tools, courses, events, everything that you can imagine to help you get better at beach volleyball. Currently, we are running a 21-day Athletic Foundations Challenge that I am in desperate need of. So essentially I took uh, my 18 days, I've had a broken foot for eight weeks and I needed the fastest protocol I could come up with for weight training, playing, uh, getting my diet on point so that I could make a comeback in three weeks for a very important tournament for me, the Pottstown Rumble. So all of our online members right now are going through our 21 day challenge where we give them all of the workouts, all of the beach volleyball practice plans and uh, some dietary challenges so that they can get themselves back to fitness in a three week window. If you ever want to join that, you are more than welcome. Just head over to betteratbeach.com. And if you want to become a full fledged member and get some online coaching from our staff, you're more than welcome. We also have camps coming up in the fall and winter. And if you're listening to this live, we are releasing the dates this week. And I am confident that they will all sell out in less than a week. I'm very confident in that. So make sure you're on our email list to keep track. Today, on our podcast, we get to talk to an awesome friend of mine, and she has a storied career, calls herself a, a, a triathlete because uh, off camera, she said she's been a player, she's been a coach, and she's been an administrator. So I'm going to read through her rap sheet here and then introduce her. From 2001 to 2005, she was the head coach of NCAA Division II Cal State Dominguez Hills, where they run their first ever regional ranking in 2004. She's been involved with indoor club volleyball as a coach and a consultant for South Bay Volleyball Club. And she was the founder and the head coach of Starlings LA West. From 91 to 2005, she played on the AVP, the FIVB, the BVA, the WPVA, all sorts of pro beach tours. And in 2007, she started, since 2007, she started teaching and developing the curriculum for USA Volleyball's beach coaching accreditation courses, which I took. So she is my teacher, my mentor for coaching volleyball, and she is leading the way for USA in terms of beach volleyball, in terms of organization, coaching players. She's 
done it all. She coached at USC. She is the has been the USA under 17 beach national team. I could go on and on about her accolades and career, but I'd just rather talk to her. So without further ado, Allie Wood Lamerson, welcome to the show. And thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. What do you make of such a long storied career you've done it all you know you played in college i think you played overseas in germany if, I, if i'm not wrong and you've seen every side of the sport so i'll ask you a tough question to start okay are you still in love with beach volleyball i am i am and every time i think oh gosh maybe it's time to have a you know a career shift or something i think well what the heck would i want to do this is great i'm on the beach I'm, you know, playing sports. I still go out and play. I was at my Monday night Queens group last night with a bunch of old ladies. So, you know, I, I, I'm still in love with this sport and there's still so much to learn. When you made the transition from player, well, you're still a player, but when you were towards the end of your pro career and then you were thinking, I guess you're fully thinking full-time coach. Now I'm going to move into this. Was that a, a hard transition between playing and then just going straight to coaching or were you coaching kind of on the side, like a lot of pros are doing currently. And then it was just an, an easy shift where you found yourself with more time. Gosh, that's a, a loaded question. I was my last few years on tour. I was also a division two indoor coach, coaching an NC2A team and teaching in their masters, first getting my masters, then teaching in the masters program at Dominguez Hills. So wow. I was kind of already juggling a lot. And then what happened was a job opened up at USAV and they had never really had a full-time beach staff person there. Mm -hmm. And as a player, having played as a USA athlete, you know, we always thought, gosh, we wish we had someone that stood up for us and knew what we needed. And I remember, I think it was Dana Lee Corso, one of my partners said, hey, you'd be perfect for this job. And I thought, what, me? I'm still going to play. And so that was kind of how it happened. I was kind of set, I think that was 2006. I was set to play with Ashley Ivy that year. And then this job opportunity came along and I went, oh gosh, okay, well, I need to take this. And then of course it was, well, can I still play AVP if I don't play FIVB? And that wasn't going to work because I'd be, you know, making funding decisions for athletes I'm playing against. It was just a little awkward. Uh, so my transition path was, I said, okay, fine. I'll take this big project on with USAV and I'll play on the EVP for a while. So I even played on the little EVP tour. So that was kind of my path to ease myself into retirement as an athlete. Were you ready to stop playing at that time? You know, because you, you had that pull to still play, but then maybe for the first time you were considering like a, an actual full-time job because yeah. coaching for a full season at, at D2, that might not, I don't know, but it might not have been full-time money or hours. Yeah, I mean, I think I was ready to, gosh, I don't know. I remember, you know, I think I was like 37 or 38, three knee surgeries in. Oh, wow. And I remember Dana Lee saying to me, because she was one of my former partners, and she had already retired. She's a couple years younger than I am. And she said, you know, everyone always wants that one last great year, but no one really gets it. And I'm like, oh, that's a good point. <laughs> and then I was talking to my dad, who was a mentor of mine, and and he said, you know, maybe the impact that you're going to leave on this sport isn't going to be on the sand. I went, oh, okay. So I think that kind of helped me with my readiness. Um, you know, still sometimes I'd be at events going, oh my God, I could beat these qualifier girls. So 
and it was hard to, you know, it's hard to walk away from points and a main, you know, you're in the main draw, but it right. was, it was time. It was a good time for me. Nice. Well, when you were playing and you essentially got into the main draw, let's take it back a, a few more years. Was there an absolute turning point that turned you on where you like, yes, I'm a pro or was there a struggle period that got you from either qualifier status or just straight out of college into, well, now I'm a pro and now I'm, uh, now I'm internationally prepared. Did you ever feel one of those like triggers? You know, for me, it was, I think I'm one of my own hardest critics. So it wasn't like, oh, I think I'm so great. I'm in the main draw now. It was a lot different back in the day. So qualifying, you had to have a pe- you know a pedigree just to get into the qualifier. And it was one match. And you know that my first year, I just played a couple of qualifiers, got my butt kicked. I think I got in once or twice. But then the next year, it was in. And I just held on from there. So it was 16 years. Not, I think I had to qualify one time in that time. That doesn't mean I didn't have to go back to the FIVB and just slug through all of those. When we used to play the country quota after the qualifier, so six matches in the quali and then a country quota at the end. Oh, what? I don't remember that. Yeah, it was crazy. It was really, really a neat experience in a way because like that was I was playing with first Krista Bloomquist Hall and then Danny Corso at that time and. We had so many international matches under our belt because you would go and play the quali as a sometimes a double, sometimes a single elimination tournament. Then if you made it through to the final four or eight teams that qualified, but there were more U.S. teams that could get in, then we would play off against each other. So I remember one time in Portugal, we played a two-day tournament before the tournament where we played 11 matches. We had to play oh. Mazakayan and Denikashe three times because we came through the winners. They beat us. So that made us even, then we beat them. And it was just, it was crazy. So I think, um, Oh my goodness. Yeah. So that was, I mean, it, it wasn't still, was it still side out scoring at that time? Good question. Cause that, I think by then it was marathons. rally score, I think, but when I, I, hope I played so some marathons. <laughs> yeah. There was one time where we finished the quality at 9 PM in Portugal and Portugal's everyone says Hermosa is the deepest sand. Portugal has the deepest sand in the world. And we had played like nine matches in two days and we were just exhausted lying in the sand. I remember thinking, thank God we're not the team that got in because we wouldn't be able to walk, you know? <laughs> yeah, those were interesting days. I mean, being at the the beginning days of the FIVB was really fun, you know, to see them now and they get to play in great cities and it's so much more organized. I'm like, wow, how far it's come because mm. we were really out there, you know, playing in some crazy places under crazy circumstances. Could you share one of those circumstances? So could you pick out one from your top three sketchiest experiences where you said, is this international professional ball is like, do you have a good one? I mean, I think the the roughest one I ever did was before the FIVB even really started much of a tour, at least on the women's side. Mm-hmm. Here I was a young, you know, two, three years into my pro career, and there was an offer to go to China to do these exhibition events. And all, all the top girls, you know, the, the Hollies and the Carolyn Kirby's were like, not me, not me. So my partner, Christy, and I said, sure, we'll go to China for two weeks. And this is before people were really going to China a lot. And it, yeah. I mean, it was 13 hour bus rides over unpaved roads and cars breaking down and stands that were made out of bamboo and fans <laughs> that just, I mean, it was crazy. I remember having 
to use the restroom between matches and it was just like a hole a, a tarp and like men and women in there at the same time i'm like oh my god you've got to be kidding me now when i'm at a tournament i see a porta potty i'm like this is no problem um <laughs> So yeah, we had, that was a really, really rough trip. I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was such a great experience, but at the time that was pretty rough. We were in Mexico one time, I think it was Acapulco and you know, you never let the bosses run the show. And it was one of those events where they didn't have a technical director for the event. So the head guy from the FIVB was running the whole thing and he didn't quite know how to run it. So I talked about the country quotas a minute ago. So he put us through this tournament and then I think we had four Brazil and four US left to play off for one space Brazil one Mm. and he mixed us together. So he didn't know that US should then play their own country quota and Brazil (laughs) their own. And we're all, you know, yelling at him and you've got to be kidding me. And we're trying to get Ed Drakich on the phone so he can explain it to the guy. And it just was a mess. And of course, I cramped and had to have two IV bags. And yeah, so those were some of the crazy early days. Yeah. Some of those crazy days are still still here. I mean, yeah. with the I mean, it's not like one stars, but essentially they're one stars. The Norseka tour is still very much yeah. like that. Oh, it's, yeah. I'm not saying it's nightmarish. But it is good adversity training. Like, and luckily, it just kind of happens in really cool places. Yeah. So as mad as you can get at the disorganization, no buses anywhere, no pickup at the airport, courts made of rocks, then you kind of look to the left and you're like, yeah, but there's the sun setting over you know, the Caribbean Sea. And it's like, all right, you know, I'll take some of this. And I'm playing beach volleyball. Right. I mean, right. with a bunch of cool people from yeah. from cool countries, and you, you get that experience that you just can't get anywhere else. I mean, even yeah. when you go on vacation, like the typical adult vacation, I guess, all you do is kind of hang out with other Americans who are also on vacation instead of learning, hanging, trying to interpret languages. I do – I guess I'm like, yeah, I love that I've gotten to travel. Not necessarily – it's on my dime. You know, but like volleyball has created some really cool opportunities from that. Yeah, I think I look at, you know, my Facebook and all the friends that I have and, you know, people from all over the world that I've played, you know, some that I've known since college where we would play in exchanges or or whatever, but mainly that I met through the FIVB tour and, you know, dear friends that were at my wedding. And and it's just so neat to have that international friend group that, you know, we can maybe not talk for 10 years, but we've shared the same experience when we get together. It's like, you know, we need to have some sort of a reunion, but the cost would be so huge to get everyone, you know, across the country and across Mm. the world and have a little FIVB reunion. Yeah, I think it's so special that something I always say is, you know, I get to meet brothers that I never knew I had just because when you meet another volleyball player, you know already that they've already gone through some of the same things, some of the same emotions, mistakes fixes with techniques so you know at least like for a while you definitely walked the same path right as soon as you meet them and that forms that that little bond right away it was really special from that view because when i started on the women's tour it was pretty cutthroat and people weren't really there on the wpva they weren't there to give you a leg up no one would play with a rookie it wasn't it was hard to forge those kind of friendships Hmm. so i think getting to the fivb then it was no threat you know there's no threat that the canadian girl is going to try to take my partner she's from canada and so that really allowed us to create some really good friendships that that went beyond borders and outside of the whole 
what was going on on our women's tour back at home, which eventually got kinder and gentler and, and more fun to be on because of, I think, the exposure that everyone had on the FIVB. So would you say that uh, today is less cutthroat than oh God, when yeah. you started? Oh, God, yeah. In specifically yeah. what way? No one would ever play or train with a rookie, ever. Like, they didn't want anyone. They wanted, like, a kind of a closed tour. They wouldn't talk to you. Not And not all the girls. Some of them were really nice. But there mm -hmm. were some that were pretty brutal. And, yeah, it was a little rough. And, you know, you would always hear the stories of 10 minutes before we, we had to call an answering machine. That's how long ago this was. So to sign up for the tournament, you leave it. Hi, this is Allie Wood, and I'm going to be playing with Danalee Corso. And she had, LaValle had to get a message from each of us saying that we were playing together, right? And you would get a phone <laughs> That's call. That's cool. Yeah, okay. 10 minutes before you'd get a message on your machine saying, oh, I decided I'm playing with someone else. And you're like, but I have 10 minutes to decide, you know, like I have to find a partner in 10 minutes. So that was, there was a lot of that happening. Oh yeah. So, I mean, I ended up once or twice. So someone, someone like would snake would oh, be yeah. like, yeah, we're playing together and then call the answering machine with another partner. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's snaky. Yeah. It was pretty snake, and it wasn't everyone, but there were a few people out there doing stuff like that. And it was just I've like, heard of that once yeah. here where somebody was ready to play on Saturday and found out on Thursday night that uh, the person they were going to sign up with had signed up with somebody else. I've heard of that once in, I guess it's 16 years now. And yeah. I was like, you know, I don't look at that guy the same way anymore. I don't know. Yeah, That's dirty. I had one where I we took a fourth at an event here at home. It was a pretty good finish, right? And then I was going with another partner to play overseas. And the partner with whom I took the fourth with waited till she knew I was on an airplane to Italy to call my answering machine and dump me for the next tournament. Yeah, so like, and it was all a points thing. It wasn't because, you know, of any way that we played. She thought she yep. could get into another tournament, which ultimately she didn't even get into. So, mm. you know, I think we all learned a lot from that. And hopefully we're all teaching this next generation how to treat each other a little bit better. Yeah, the points game is still, it's still very real. real and and oh, I yeah. don't think humans have gotten any better at breaking up with each other yeah. <laughs> in the Darn last it. 30 years. But yeah, there, there's some guys that I know that kind of do it the way or you call and you say all this, some of them kind of snake out with a, with a little text and some of them you just never hear from. So you assume, or you heard from somebody else that they're, oh, they don't want to play with you anymore. Yeah. You know, it's, it's still going on. Yeah. But. It's funny. I, um, when I was at Dominguez Hills coaching at the D2 school and still playing my masters I got was in negotiation and conflict management. And it was and then I taught that I taught a conflict management for sport class. And it was what so interesting to then skill to have. I want to take that class yeah, to take a step back and look at how everyone kind of managed conflict in their life. And it was really interesting to be doing what I was doing professionally and going through that education and yeah. kind of seeing how people are and understanding myself a lot more. Like I understood, I now have a much better understanding for how I was handling conflict at the time and how that wasn't really helping me. Cause I'd be the one, you know, as an accommodator, I'd say, okay, no, you know, it's my bad, my fault, all this stuff. And then, you know, the accommodator finally gets, feels like they've been walked on and they're going to lose, mm. end up throwing sand at your partner. Then you look like the bad guy or, so it was really interesting going through that. And it helped me kind of figure out some partner relationships. And I use that every day and coaching and training and marriage and, What's one specific thing that you that you think you picked up from that class that you saw just so consistently in beach volleyball? Because the the relationship and the mindset are 
it kind of still, I don't know, they have like a, not a mystique, but people want to know how to handle their relationships better or if they're doing it right or how do I make someone better or should I even be playing with a certain personality? So was there anything specifically that you took from that class that you saw in beach volleyball, what needed to happen more or what was happening too much? Well, I think uh, it's, you know, understanding how you manage conflict. And there's a great diagram that they have in conflict management. I can't remember the name of it, but it's a quadrant. And it talks about how, where you place your needs versus where you place the other person's needs. Okay. So if I'm someone that puts my needs ahead of your needs, then I'm sort of that high conflict warrior type personality. And if I'm someone who places other people's needs above mine, I'm more that accommodator. And so as an accommodator, I would kind of, I don't know if I meant to do it, but I would be seeking out these warrior types. And that can kind of clash because as I said mm. before, the accommodator gives and gives and gives, but at some point they want a little acknowledgement. And so then they get frustrated. And then the warrior type is saying, well, why is this suddenly a problem now? Because you've always just done everything, mm. you know? And, and so I think just, just understanding that and, getting a feel for how do we get to collaboration? You know, I, the, ste the next step is cooperation and then collaboration where both of our goals can kind of me meld together. And, you know, it's hard when you're looking over your back, hoping that you're not going to get dumped by someone. And, you know, I think just, I think communication and trust, and again, trust, we studied that a lot too. It's like consistency of action over a period of time builds either trust or distrust or trust that you'll do something not good. You know, mm -hmm. so there's all different kinds of trust. So those are sort of some of the topics that we talked about and learned. And it kind of helped me in my career, both as an athlete, but then certainly as an administrator and hugely as a coach. Do you think that, and because there are such relationship problems, are you of the school that the federations should choose teams, that there should be a team or a person in charge of what teams should be competing together? Or do you like the U.S. system where we make every choice for ourselves and USA just goes, okay, go ahead. Let's see how you do. Yeah, I think that's interesting because when we started, I started the high performance program and the junior national team years ago. And I think 2009 was the first year that we did that. And, you know, I actually hired one of my old partners back to Dana Lee to be the head coach. And I was the director of the program. And we thought, well, we know everything. So <laughs> We're just going to put these kids together and they're going to be great. And of course we put these two girls together that didn't really like each other very much. And turns out their parents really didn't like each other. And so, uh. so uh, they, they ended up playing pretty well together, but I think we learned through trial and error that it's really, I think a mix is the best thing, especially as they're younger, because okay. younger kids, girls, especially they're going to, they want to play with a friend. They want to play with a buddy. And I, I believe that there has to be a little bit of, common ground between them but as they get older and it becomes more of a profession or a sport something we're doing then they start thinking oh i want to win and if this mm. person's my friend but i'm not going to win with them maybe i need to go in a different direction so i think having that head coach you know i think jose loyola is in that that role now i think for him you know communicating with the athletes and just sitting down and, and saying, mean, this is what we started doing later in the process is we, you know, get our top eight kids and then say, all right, if you were selected to go internationally, tell us your top three and who are they oh. and why? And then we take that into account. And is there anyone that you will not play with? And that's actually something that I've done at every college I've been at too, is like, let's hear 
because we can write on paper what our best lineup is, but if they really don't want to play with someone and they're not going to work for that person, then it's not the best lineup. So I think talking to Beth Van Fleet at Georgia State, she was really the, yeah. the first coach that was talking about, hey, let's have them draft not only who they want to play with, but let's make each player draft a lineup for the team and see how close they are to where we are. And I think that they've... I love that. We used yeah, to do that for indoor. Setter, yeah. like choose your starting lineup. Who do you think? Yeah. I, I did that for club juniors and, and our college coach did that for our setters specifically. Nice. And he said, like, yeah. who's your starting lineup? You know, and we had that like old school playground stuff where it actually put me in my place as an yeah. incoming junior. I thought I was way better than somebody. And uh-huh. they lined you up and they said, pick your team. And when I got picked close to last, I was like, what? what? Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, first time ever in my life. You're in a D1 yeah. program for the first time. Now you're like picked last. And I was like, yeah. even behind those guys? Yeah. All right, I guess I got some proving to do, you know, but yeah. that to me, I took that as a very good thing. Like I was yeah. like, huh, all right, that, I took that as a motivator. So The whole growth mindset piece. Yeah. I always like yeah. to draft my indoor lineup from the NBA. Like what if these guys all quit basketball and decided to come play volleyball? My husband and I always sit down and like draft our lineups and put them against each other. Who you got? Come yeah. on, share uh, it. Well, of course, Steph, because he played. We what, haven't done it in here. Or outside? What's that? Would he set or hit outside? I think he'd probably hit outside. Yeah. We had Dwight Howard in the middle, but now I'm like, ah, he's old and broken. Not I mean, back in well. the day, I had Garnett as an opposite. We haven't done it in a lot of years, so we oh, have to man. go back and rethink. We This is a perfect Instagram post for us. Oh, yeah. Take your sure. dream. Oh, man. Huh. And maybe we should do it from like women's track as well or another big women's sport because there's some monster <laughs> athletes on track right now. Oh man. Yeah. All right. N- nice. Thank you for the content idea. <laughs> there, you, there you go. There you go. So as somebody who's coached at all of these levels and is now kind of, you know, still steering uh, the national and international conversation, what do you think coaches are missing across the board? Oh goodness. I think the coaches out there are doing such a, an amazing job moving the sport forward. One of the reasons I love it's, I've kind of shifted into an assistant role at USA and I'll, and it's been so fun because I've assisted Fuller and I've assisted, I just recently assisted Kristen Batt and I learned so much working with these guys. I had Derek um, last summer and just, he's great. I know just learning so much from all these different coaches has been really great. So I think that everyone's doing a great job there. I think the hard piece is that in, I, I see someone, Mark Zen put up a question about it, but, that whole conflict management and getting them to work together well, that pe- that people part, because that's really hard as coaches. We know the X's and O's, but we might not know the psychology of how to get people to work well with each other and how do we motivate them and, you know, how do we get the kids to have a growth mindset and be intrinsically motivated? And I think that's the biggest piece that we're still learning and working on. I completely agree. The, the emotional and leadership qualities and developing culture. Yeah. It, literally anyone can teach you how to put your hands together, pass and how to square up to your target and set, you know, that's, it's easy to see, but it's the intangibles that you can't physically see and demonstrate that people struggle, struggle yeah. with in a big way. Are there any quick answers that you have? Like the tips that you, Ooh. that you find yourself giving the most? I think, I mean, I think the number one thing is 
you know, I go back to my coaching philosophy and it's all about trust and communication and you got to get that stuff out. Like I, the team I coached at, I was at Marymount, California this last year, we had nine freshmen and three COVID freshmen. So all, and most of them new to the beach. So all new players. And we just started doing a trust circle whenever there was BS, you know, going on with the team, we just sit down and say, forget practice. We're going to sit down and, and and work through some of the stuff and and talk and and you know we just had that whole nothing leaves the circle we're going to talk about it and they could say whatever they wanted to a partner or a person i mean they had to be somewhat respectful but just i think people forget to work through some of that stuff and when we don't hear it we don't say it we start assuming something else on the other person's part and so that starts going in our head. Well, what does she mean by that? And what is she thinking? And then that's where the conflict just blows up. So I think, you know, ignoring that stuff is it's only going to get worse. So just kind of hitting it head on. And no one, no one loves like, well, I mean, some people do, but how many people wake up and go like, gosh, I really want to talk to Mark today about that really uncomfortable issue that we're both skirting. No one feels that way. Yeah. But to really sit down and hit it on the head, like afterwards, you're like, Oh my goodness. It was to the point this year where I'd say circle up and the girls would say, you're not going to make us all cry again. Are you I'm like, no, no, that's not what it's about. But you know, we had some really breakthrough moments and then, then some leaders started to arise and the trust and the commonalities between the athletes started to develop. And so I think, I think that kind of thing is important. How do you facilitate that specifically? So when you get them into a circle and you're like, Hey, there's stuff we need to talk about on the team. Do you say, mention your first something you hate right now or do you give like hey everybody has to present a sandwich do you have a totem that you pass around so if you were to teach this to me and i had my club team right now and you needed to tell me exactly what you did and how to do it how would you do that i would give you a couple different examples so okay. you know if if it there's not a specific conflict then i just start with some team bonding things maybe there's like we were very divided into this year into the party girls and the not party girls <laughs> so we came up with a team bonding thing where they all had to participate together or they weren't going to be able to complete it they physically had to do stuff together what was that um so we do this thing where they all they don't know what's coming they all take if if it's indoor they take a knee pad if it's beach they take a flip-flop and they put their heels on the sideliner and line and they lie down so their head is off the court okay and underneath their head is the knee pad or the shoe and they just we give them a moment to like you know I'll talk them through a guided meditation and just talk about you know goals and seeing the goal out there and what is it that you're reaching for and how are you going to get there and we give them some time then we say okay open your eyes leave your your item whether it's a shoe or, or knee pad where it is and come onto the court. So I come onto the court and I said, you now that knee pad is your, or that flip-flop, that's your goal. You can't leave the court. You can't touch any of the sand outside the court. How are you gonna get it? And what they'll quickly realize after, you know, trying to reach and do all these things is that they have to use the group as a whole and they have to kind of come together and talk it through and use the group as a whole to lower the person. And if they each have it behind their head, then it should be something that they can reach with help. Mm. You know, the short girls is going to be a little bit closer and the little tall girls will be a little further. And it's a really good trust moment because they'll fall down and they'll fail a couple of times and they'll say, Hey, you come over here and I really need you to support me and grab my legs. And it's just kind of a fun one. Mm. I think it's on our, there's a, 
video of us doing it on the MCU Instagram because we did that with that. I do it with every national team group. Now the secret's out, so the kids know it's coming. Cool, cool. Um, but yeah, that's a good one just to get them working together. You know, we did the stuff where you reach across and hands, and then they have to untangle themselves and stuff like that. You think um, those? You think those are, are truly, truly valuable? You know, I always looked at them as like, yeah, we get to laugh together. Yeah, we get to understand each other and and fight outside of volleyball because sometimes volleyball becomes the main stressor. Yeah, even when it's supposed to be like your outlet and your fun. So I like creating activities. I just wonder how, you know, you see it in movies and you hear people recommend it, but do they really form bonds? They really strengthen teams? I think so. I mean, the feedback's always been pretty good. You have to figure out how much practice you're willing to skip for those kind of things. But I think that, especially for girls, because there's the whole girls have to bond to battle where guys battle to bond. Could you... I, I've said that exactly a, a few times on the podcast, but could you explain what you mean by that? Because uh, this so, is in the USAV coaching book, right? Well, yeah, and Kathy DeBoer re- wrote a really good book about it. But it's just that the way that the general female psyche is, is that we have to kind of be friends and bond together before we're going to fight for each other, before we're going to battle and put ourselves on the line where guys create that bond through the battle. So they'll get out there and because we have the same uniform on, we're going to battle. And then through that action, we're going to bond. So it's just a kind of a different, I mean, these are generalizations. I remember the first time I heard that I was like, I'll battle with whomever, but you know, but then you step back and you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. That kind of does exemplify the experience I've had as a female athlete. So just creating those opportunities to kind of connect with, with each other. We did Mm -hmm. another fun one. We did this going into the three or four years ago. We had the, it was like, three international events with the U19. So it was the Norseka qualifier, the U19 world championships and the youth Olympic games all in one summer. So it's pretty big summer for these kids. So we set up an obstacle course and then blindfolded one partner and the other one had to talk the other partner through it. I used to play Tetris like that with my brothers. Oh yeah. It was so good. And I mean, the girls that I had on the team and the guys that year were just, they were so awesome and they just embraced everything and there wasn't any conflict. They all got along, but that was really, I mean, but that was, that was a superior group of kids. That was, you know, Newberry and Lindsay Sparks and the Norses and what a fun group, but we had so much fun doing stuff like that. I think it really kind of just opened up that bonding to battle piece for them. Do you think that pro teams should be embracing some of these, you know, how the AVP is, you know, there's partners constantly shifting, constantly leaving lots of ego and, and then money on the line. But do you think that those teams would benefit from, you know, hey, we're, we're playing a, a tournament in two weeks. It'll be our first time together. We should go through these team building exercises. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you ever listen to either Nat Cook or Kerry Pothars talk about their road to the Olympics. I love them. N- none of us thought they were going to win an Olympic gold. We thought, okay, bronze, silver, you know, and they would dream in gold and i think nat had a gold toaster and i mean they just had this mindset that they put together and they didn't always like each other i mean they had split up and then gotten back together and Mm -hmm. just to see them go through that and what they did with their coach steve anderson and their whole crew was just amazing and to see them come out the other end with they they manifested what they said they were going to do and i mean there's so many things that go into winning a gold medal it's also how the other guy plays and you're drawn but i mean they're that's one where they just really put the work in it and it 
look at what it did for them. And, and now they both have brilliant public speaking um, careers and doing some really neat things because of, I think, not just what they did on the court, but the stuff that they did off the court. Mm. Yeah, we had, uh, we had carry on two or three times because I met her while I was playing on the Australian tour. And yeah. even then, even for a 10 minute meeting for the first time she like somehow was inspirational like in that moment you know i was like i i just played and i was like you know i'm just gonna go get one beer so come back tomorrow like get rid of cramps get some electrolytes in and she's like but mock why she's like what if what if that one beer is the one point she's like what if what if you leave that on the table and i was like all right okay i won't yeah. <laughs> like let's go i mean i know it's three hundred dollars on the line for a first place in australia but <laughs> yeah yeah she's great i got to play two tournaments with her oh and what a what a Pleasure. fun time i realized quickly that i was a terrible transition setter because i hadn't had a partner that dug everything here she's six foot one used to blocking and she's running around behind me digging everything i'm like oh my god i have to turn around and set but we ended up taking a fourth or a third and, and hermosa open and just having so much fun playing together and then we won a little silly tournament up in Toronto a couple weeks later. So that was that was a pretty cool summer. Hey, what when you're talking to the international kids, uh, U19s, U17s, what's their focus? You know, what do you when they come to you and they're already performing at a high level for their age group? How much can you give them in that short period of time? And and what is the focus when you're their coach for you know a two week period or a four week period? How do you handle that? I think the way I always handled it, both as a director at U.S. and then as a head coach with the, I did the 17s and the 19s, is really just preparing them for what it's going to be like because they have no idea. And I think now with the internet, they can watch FIVB. They kind of have a familiarity. Some of these kids are already coming to us. You know, I think of a Tim Brewster who probably knows every player on the FIVB and everything about them. So they're coming with that bit of knowledge that maybe 10 years ago the kids didn't have, but. Yeah you know how this is no one can tell you what it's like to play with usa on your back in 95 degree heat with a hostile crowd and weird food like that those are the things and that you weird don't expect food. weird food when you're super jet lagged and so just preparing them like i remember when we did the u17s i mean we always try to get the kids down to chula for that training camp I th mm -hmm. and i think that was such a a great thing that we did and i hope that they can continue to do that is getting those kids down there for four to eight days and before we would travel and talking about how what's our jet lag preparedness strategy, you know, teaching them how to shift their calendar. So they're, they're their sleep schedule. So they're prepared for, you know, they're not as jet lag. We would do a whole SWOT analysis. So strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats and talk about, you know, what are the things that we have in our favor that are going to support us as a team and what things are, where are we weak? Mm. And then, where you know what's what are the opportunities where's the other guy weak and what where are the threats where are they strong and we'd sit down there as a group you know eight athletes or four athletes depending on how many we got to travel that time and talk through some of those things so when they happened it wasn't like oh my god what's happening it's like oh yeah, yeah. Allie said the food's going to be really weird or the gatorade's going to taste different and our dietitian <laughs> said that this was going to happen and i have earplugs so that when the hotel gets loud at night and i brought my own pillow and all the things that they wouldn't really maybe have thought about because they're so nurtured here when they play at home. Do you think there would be any value in, <laughs> I did this to a couple teams called it adversity training. I would intentionally set traps 
you know, I like, I would make things go wrong. Like, uh, I would just tell the team like, no, the lights won't turn on. And I would make them wait <laughs> for 10 minutes, you know, sitting there and be like, okay, we have to play right now. We don't have time to warm up. We have to play right now. You know, so I'd create little environments and then talk about it after practice. How did we react? What are we going to do if that's what happens, you know, for, for a match? Do you think there's value in just talking about it or is there value in actually creating some sort of weird stressor uh, for oh, coaches yeah. who are trying to put their kids through it? Oh yeah. State dependent training. You know, it's a, a key, a key component of motor learning is state dependent training, right? You want to train in the state that you're going to be exposed to. So mm. we've done things where we, we got a bunch of, I don't remember what we promised though. We were, we were training down at Cohasset in San Diego this is in the early days. And we had Stafford Slick and Mark Van Zwieten. And I, I don't remember. They the knocked other. me out of the U26. Oh, oh, sorry. Well, anyhow, we were getting One ready for that, that event. Oh, is that when you were with Hudson? Yep. Oh, yep. Nice. We lost to them in New York. And that was the like oh, my hometown funny. lost that match. And that would have sent us to oh, be with dear. you guys. So yeah. anyhow, we were preparing for that event you didn't get to go to. And, uh, <laughs> Not a sore topic at all. <laughs> yeah. And I think we just asked a bunch of people on the beach, like, hey, we're at Cohasset in San Diego, because that's before we had courts at Chula. Mm. Like, hey, will you just come and like cheer against these guys and cheer, you know, be really loud? And so we had like homeless guys yelling at Stafford. <laughs> Which actually worked out really well because when we got to uh, Turkey, they had to play Turkey and there was some incident between the Turkish team and there was words under the thing. And the next thing you know, the crowd just turned totally hostile and to where they threw garbage at the guys at the end of the match. And so I thought, well, okay, we got them somewhat prepared for that. Or <laughs> we were down at Chula Vista with the U-17s and I, my assistant at the time was Rico Guimaraes. I don't know if yeah. you know Rico. Yeah. Yeah, I coached so with him Rico with brought the, his, like, the collegiate team. He was, his, like, I was Brazilian his drum and his Vuvuzela. And he would just run around the court. He would jog the entire time we were playing matches and just beat the drum and yell at the guys while I'm up on the ref stand just refing terribly. Ah. You know, just like anything we can and it's there's some fun in it but yeah. just to get them prepared for like it's gonna this is gonna happen to you and how are you gonna handle it yeah you know so yeah i think all of that that stuff you know to where i mean i was just talking to someone the other day when we would as a player when we would play in brazil i'd always go to bay club spectrum club back at the time and go into the steam room and i would jog in the steam room and people would look at me like i was insane but just to get used to that feeling of like oppressive heat. And of course you can't keep that up very long. You're going to pass out, but uh -huh. just to kind of prepare for what's it, what is it going to be like to be in super oppressive, humid, you know, hot environment and have to get up and be physical in that environment. So any, yeah. any little tactics that I think they can employ are going to help them to say, okay, wait, I was, I've been here before. I know what this is like. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, we got, we had batteries and pennies threw at us on uh, <laughs> on some courts in Puerto Rico. It was like, yeah, nice. there's some interesting times. Yeah, oh, yeah. and I, I, I like a little bit of exposure. Like, hey, it's not going to be perfect, so here's what it's going to be like. And you, you kind of laugh at the coaches that do that and, like, talk friendly smack. And Adam right. Sandler just had a movie that came out where he's a, an agent slash coach and he's talking trash to his player. Oh, but it's like, that. yeah, it's going to happen. And it, yeah. that's funny. That Adam Sandler movie I saw two days ago, it's like he did exactly what we're talking about. All he did was talk smack to this guy. Which is great to hear because I feel like all sports movies are so unlike, like they've clearly been made by someone who's never been an athlete. It's like right? they don't get it. But yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, all right, cool. 
I'm going to chug through our little questions here. So I'm, I'm going to ask who you think was the most influential person to your career, both as a player and then as a coach. As a player, when I think of my pro career, I was lucky to play with, to train with like all the greats from Pat Zartman was my first coach and Anna Collier and Nina. But I think as a, the coach that I got the most out of that really helped me change my game was Dane Selznick. Mm. And, you know, I don't know if you ever trained with Dane, but he breaks it down to where you feel like you can't do anything. And then he, it's all about footwork. And build you back up and that you know as a former dancer i danced for nine years as a kid that that footwork piece really spoke to me so i think that and then as a player also i was lucky enough to hook up with a strength coach about four years into my pro career i remember being in Kauai. it was like an invitation on Kauai, and i was playing with wendy fletcher i don't remember who we were playing but it was like 12 12 old school scoring at noon and I felt like my head was on fire. It was so hot. And I thought to myself, I would like to be any place but here right now. And if someone would just tell me the result later, you know, yes, you won. Yes, you lost. I didn't care. And that I've never not cared about winning or losing. But I was so hot. I was so fatigued. You know, it's the old Vince Lombardi. Was it fatigue makes cowards of us all. And that's how mm. I felt. And it was the last tournament of the season. It was October. I remember thinking, I never ever want to feel like that again so there was this guy mark hoffman we just call him the angry inch he was a strength coach that was working with a couple of the athletes and and i just called him up and i said i want to be your client and i was with mark for 11 years and he Whoa. completely changed my you know the way i thought the way i ate the way i trained everything about my game and just what did you, know, you not do the differently easy that i mean as as a pro you're already in there you're already keeping things tight you know what did he do and add that was so game changing for you? I think it was, first of all, I, you know, just getting me the, the periodization. People weren't really, there weren't a lot of trainers out there that understood beach volleyball yet. So having my plan be periodized and then having it all work together. So my sprint training and my lifting work together. And, and it was a lot of experimentation. I remember the first couple of years, I, you know, I'm an athlete that puts on muscle pretty easily. Mm. So the first few years I was like, I remember coming home one day and my boyfriend at the time was like, hey, I love how hard you're working. This is great. But how big are you going to get, Allie? I'm like, why do you ask? <laughs> um, but uh, just kind of figure, and I, and I did, I mean, that's a funny way to describe it, but I did realize I was lifting too heavy at that time. And like, I could jump really high, but we're like, hey, I'm a little slow footed on defense. So just, just finding that, how do we fine tune it? So I think just I knew having, somebody like that who could keep lifting, her strength just kept going up and her coach was like, you can go more, you can go more. And she goes, you don't understand. I could lift this easily. She yeah. goes, I could lift two times this, but I'm getting slower because of how big I am. And right. I'm a setter, even yeah. though I could be stronger, what more benefit do I have when like all I need is speed and precision. Right. And so her, her strength was just kind of off the mark and she was terribly uncomfortable with all of it when she was like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so it's, in it's interesting that you, that you said that, like, yeah, even though you're getting yeah. bigger and stronger, it might not be helping your game at some right. point. Right. So I think, you know, he was able to kind of pivot from that. And the next year we kind of dialed it back a little bit, worked on any, he, he rehabbed me through two knee surgeries and, you know, did a lot of, you know, when all the partner crap was going on, just was a person that I could talk to about it and mm. someone to hold me accountable because I can, 
you know, be a little lazy, a little OCD sometimes. And so that, that part was really great. And yeah. So I think Mark shout out to him. He's, you know, since passed away, but he was just a great, great influence to a lot of, I mean, he was training both Wong brothers at the time and um, it seemed like everyone trained with him at some point, but he was just a really pain in the ass, but just a really influential, influential person there. And then I think my career, I just asked one one question before you go on because I know what went through every one of our listeners' minds right now is uh, she said strength and sprint training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how do you mix your practices with your with your weight room with your sprint training? We have a, a sixty day max vertical course and we include all of the agility and explosiveness along with the weight training, and then we do a lot of coaching as far as what days you want to practice and what days you don't. But I want to hear it from you how you you said you were sprinting during certain times of the year and, and not during others, or uh, how was your periodization going for that? So uh, this is a number of years. So I have to think back to it, but um, you know, we would start off with that steady state training early on just to get the cardio base. And then we would get, what does that tra- mean? Steady state uh, training. Steady state training. So just going out for a run and just getting your heart rate up and building a, a cardio base. And then slowly we'd start adding in things like, fart legs, which would be like an interval train, you know, where you're sprinting the sidelines and jogging the, the ends or sprint eights where you're doing whatever it is, whether you're on a, a bike or a, in the sand, you're going really hard for 30 seconds with a one and a half to two minute recovery for you know, about 20 minutes, because that's kind of how our sport is. We go really yeah. hard and then we have that recovery time. And then were we those would amp- on your practice days or were they on your non-practice days? Typically, it, it varied a lot, okay. you know, it varied like we would cram a lot in Saturday. So a lot of us were working. Mark typically had about 10 to 12 athletes, pro athletes do his training. So Saturday would be a big day that we would all get together and do our sprint training and then maybe do some volleyball and then go to the gym and lift afterwards. But everyone, yeah, it was kind of spread out. It depended on what phase we were in a lot. Okay. Um, and then we do a lot on the sand hill priest, like getting closer to the season. We do, We'd start at the track or on the grass. And then as we got closer to season, then we get more doing our ladder drills in the sand, doing our sprints in the sand. And then we get to that sand hill, my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever doing the sprint training during season? Oh, good question. I don't think we really were that much. I okay. think, I mean, we, we would always do the, some agility and stuff, but I don't think we were doing like full on sprint. Like we weren't on the track at all during, mm. during season. Um, we might've been doing just like the, some really short sprint work in the sand. Sure. Enough to not fatigue yourself, not gas yourself, but to stay fast. Right. And then build up that base probably more towards the off season or or preseason. Yep. What advice do you have for current players? Oh, wait, you, no, no, we, we have to go back to what your influential, most influential as far as a coach was. Oh, that's right. I would say not someone that, that coached me or that I was coached by, but it, when I think of my professional career as, you know, I went, I was coaching division two, but then I went to working at USA volleyball and I, the person who influenced me a lot and taught me a lot was Doug Beal. And I know he's always been controversial because some of the guys who played for him were like, ah, it's, you know, it's so hard or whatever. But as a CEO of USA volleyball, he was the most fair and balanced person. He was, you know, willing to call BS when it, he needed to, and just gave me the support to grow the program and 
I still talk to him on a regular basis. He's a great guy. So I think, yeah. And then some of the people that I got to work with throughout the beach coach accreditation program have been amazing, which is now called just beach education through USA volleyball. They're actually rebooting it by just getting to talk to the Bill Neville's of the world or the human yeah. Cutchins and Sue Gonzaski and a lot of people that come from that indoor world. And then I find a lot of inspiration from the people that, you know, we've kind of collaborate collaboratively have grown this sport together. And I just love sitting down with Wayne Hawley and, and talking, you know, beach volleyball or John Aharoni and, and Tyra Turner and just some of the people that I've gotten to work with there. So I think there's been a, you know, a lot of people kind of cohesively influencing each other. It's been really cool. And as you mentioned, Wayne, and you guys have, he formed a company about a year and a half ago, right? Called Beach yeah. Prospects. And then he recruited you. Yeah. Yeah. So Wayne was at Tulane and then Georgia State and then decided that he didn't want the, you know, he wanted to do something different. So he started Beach Prospects, which is a beach recruiting consultancy. We don't really call ourselves a service because we don't do what a traditional college basketball service would do. What we do is we contract with different kids who are getting recruited or want to to go through the recruiting process and we help them navigate that process everywhere from kind of doing an analysis of their athletics their academics and some of the social things like where what part of the country do they want to be what division they want to play that sort of thing and then creating a list for a target list for them of here are the schools that we think you're a good fit because you know every kid wakes up and goes, I want to play for USC or Florida State. And that's not really, the, or UCLA, sorry, Stein. That's not really the reality for every beach volleyball player. So just helping the kids explore what's out there and then helping them learn how to talk to a college coach, what the recruiting rules are, just kind of supporting them through the process. So we're not a company that's going to send a bunch of blank emails on your behalf. We're going to mm -hmm. say, hey, Susie, Here's who I think, you know, Who here's who's going to be at this tournament. Here's how you can talk to them. Here's when you can talk to them. And just kind of guiding them that way. So, yeah, Wayne asked me to join last year. I started in on that and then was doing a lot of stuff at Marymount. So now I'm kind of back and focusing on the Beach Prospects piece with Wayne. And he's just doing a great job. I think he signed, like, he helped 38 players, I think, in the last 18 months get wow. collegiate yeah, get collegiate roster spots at Division One and Division Two places. So That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, we've got Shane Spellman's working with us too. He does all our video oh, yeah. editing, and yeah, it's a, our little triumvirate there. That's great. You guys got a yeah. squad. Yeah, we do. It's fun. <laughs> nice. Is there a big mistake that most people make that you like immediately? Like, do you guys have like a top ten list that you can just give to everybody, assuming that they'll they'll need to know this? You know, we talk about like what are our big threes. Uh, you know, the three things you must know. And for mm. me, you know, as a a college coach that you know has gotten all the video and gone through the recruiting process at the division one division two and naia level the biggest mistake is letting your parents or your club coach drive the process so the kids need to know that it's their process and the coach doesn't want to hear from a recruiting service i mean honestly as a college coach i get all those mass emails and it's just delete, 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 delete. You as know, soon you wanna, as you see the subject line yeah, or as like, soon as you see it's from this service or that service, you know, I want to see it's from the kit. I want to hear from the kit. That is something that yeah. those companies are going to hate that I is know, aired. Sorry, and but... it's, it's something that, that people need to hear that, you know, you're trying, this is what, I mean, so those companies will probably say, Hey, 
it's a business. We're going to send it out. We're going to like chum the waters and, and try to get a bite out of this. And the coaches will probably say, this is my family that you're trying to come be a part of. And if you can't walk in a door, shake, shake my hand and introduce yourself with your first name, looking at me in the eye, what, what do you, you know, what do you want? Like, you're going to show up to my front door in a hoodie where I can't see your face and then try to like date my daughter. No, no, (laughs) I guess that's going to happen. And that's what people are, I assume that's what, you know, kind of happens with those emails that that get mass emailed with a a whole template situation. They think they're chumming the waters, but they're really just making them muddy and gross to the point where you won't even fish there. Yeah. It's just creating a lot of work for the coach or the assistant coach or whomever. I, you know, I had someone liken it the other day. They said, I don't, I cast my line. I don't throw out a net. Hmm. I thought that was a good way of like, we're very specific. And I was just talking to a college coach yesterday about that. Like, recruiting strategy and what they're looking for and it's very specific to each college especially with beach because we're such a small boutique sport we all know each other mm-hmm. you know that there's not and that's you know these, all the beach coaches are so tight right now because it's, it's small it's, every like it seems like 90 percent of the current ncaa coaches are former avp or at least oh, avp yeah. qualifiers oh, it's yeah. like a real tight group right yeah. now yeah and it, it's that's why i think having you know me, Wayne, Shane out there, because we know everyone. And, and when they get something emailed from a mass email, they're just like, I don't know who this is. Mm. So I, you know, we're a small boutique little sport right now. And it is all kind of who, you know, and I, so that's kind of what we do, but oh, we, let's get back to our three things we were talking about. <laughs> Make that personal relationship, know the coach's first name. <laughs> Sometimes you'll, I'll get emails to like the coach who was a year ago or they'll misspell your name or the send it to like, Oh, the, the wrong coach. Like they've obviously just cut and pasted it to a bunch mm-hmm. of different schools. I think for athletes too, uh, not taking things personally, I think a lot, there's so many differences between division one, division two and NAIA about when coaches can respond back to you. So I could be saying, Hi, Mark, coach at UCLA. I want to come to UCLA. I want to come to UCLA. And I'm not going to hear anything back because I can't until June 15th going into my junior year, going into my junior year, right? Yeah. But if I don't know that, I might be like, well, he never says hi or he never responds back. So I think really kind of knowing those rules and knowing what they can and can't do. I always, when I was at SC, it was funny because I live here in the South Bay and I coach for USAV and I work at I was working at USC at the time. And I would go into Frito Misto, which was about 400 yards from my house at the time, and have dinner with my family. And every time I was in there during the summer, there'd be like six different volleyball families. <laughs> and they're like, hey, coach, what's up? And I'm like, yeah, I can't really talk to you right now. And, you know, you're not being rude. It's just those are the rules of what we can and can't do. I had one instance. I was at Rock and Fish, and my daughter was like three at the time. And I saw a family like that and they're like, Hey coach. I'm like, Hey, and they knew the rules, but my daughter just decided she loved the mom's necklace. I went and sat in her lap. I was like, I like your necklace. I'm like, Oh, this is awkward. I got to call compliance tomorrow and be like, Oh, my kid sat in this lady's lap. Are we okay there? And it it was really a unique sport for our compliance office to deal with because they hadn't really dealt with a sport where everyone was in this small little microcosm of Hermosa beach and just interacting and and hanging out. Yeah, yeah, like you're, it's, you're on the beach. The Am I allowed to be on Hermosa Beach while there's a volleyball tournament running? Right. I remember I, I, I had a coach who wanted to be at my player clinic, but she had to like call every day and say like, "Are there going to be any uh, kids there? Are going to be any kids there?" 
And then she said, if there's a club running on the courts next to my clinic, she couldn't be at my clinic. Yeah. And I was like, oh gosh, these the rules run run deep and strict. <laughs> I remember when I was at SC, my niece was playing club indoor volleyball. And I wanted to go watch her play. And they're like, well, she's not your daughter, so you can't go. I'm like, but she's my niece. She lives with me. She's lived with me for years. Like, I want to, I'm her guardian. Can I go see her play? So finally they said, okay, you can go see her play, but you can't look at any other team. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> you've been to like momentous in those gyms. I'm like, I've got to walk through a 32 court gym like this. And then it was not only could I only watch her team play, but then I couldn't talk to Mick Haley, the indoor coach for a week afterwards. So like, I was just supposed to walk by him in the hall. And granted my do- my niece's team was in like third or fourth division. There was no one on that team that was going to USC, but still those were the rules that I had set forth if I wanted to go watch my niece play. So that's what we have to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think, do you think the NCAA is the rules turn coaches off? Do you think that there could be, better coaches, better minds in the NCAA if there weren't so many ways you could do it wrong and lose your career? You know, I think I think that there are things that turn coaches off of coaching collegiately. I'm not sure that that's it because I think that most of the good schools have great compliance departments. And okay. as long as a coach has a great relationship with their compliance department, they're going to be okay. okay. Because that compliance is going to help them with the rules. And they might not like the rules, but they're going to stay out of trouble more so than a basketball or a football coach is going to. But I think that what a lot of people don't understand, we talked about, you know, former AVP, AVP pros being coaches. I remember when NC2A first, it, when it first became an, on the merging sport list for NC2A, which is how beach volleyball got its start for women in college. And I was at USA at the time and helping assisting with the AVCA and trying to get that, that done. And it was quite a fight. People don't realize that it wasn't like, hey, this is great. There was a lot of naysayers and people that didn't want it and, you know, a a move to override the vote and all this stuff. So once it finally came in, of course, all these AVP players like, I'm going to be a coach. And I remember saying, well, hold on. What do you know about amateurism, compliance, budgeting, you know, all these different things? Because coaching, again, I was talking to a coach yesterday who said, I just want to get back to the sand and coach. And I'm working on, you know, venue development and I'm working on all these other pieces because your job is maybe 20% coaching your athletes and then the rest are all these other things. So I think that's the part that kind of drives people out of the sport because you get away from what you love, which is being on the sand and coaching the game and you're in meetings and you're doing carol logs or having to log every hour that every kid spent doing anything. And there's a lot that goes into the whole college world. Yikes. Yeah. yeah, we've got, for Better Beach, we've got a few coaches who are former NCAA and could easily, you know, are getting invites to be NCAA uh, and choosing not to. I think a little bit more for us anyway, it's because of the freedom of schedule, you know, where they yeah. don't have to travel as much. But it's it's not super glamorous to be in an NCAA coach. There's a lot of long nights. There's a lot of being away from the family. It's rewarding as hell to take kids from that transition, turn them out as good quality people a few years later. You know, I've been lucky to be under the influence of coaches who believed in people more so than they believed in in volleyball. 
and you know i was lucky enough to be a beneficiary of that but some of them they also like you said they don't have the mental the relationship training uh being able to to navigate those where they're just trying to play volleyball and then the other stuff like venue selection and hourly stuff that gets in the way so then they start resenting that and then yeah i i wonder what the answer is for somebody who just loves coaching volleyball now is it assistant ncaa coach is it assistant no coach the assistant's gonna a, have to a club the, director the assistant has to do all that administrative work that the head doesn't want to do at some places so, some yeah, places so, the head yeah, takes all that and then the assistant is the court coach that's true yeah i mean i think coaching if you're okay with the travel coaching on the international tour then you can really impact one or two teams that you're working with money yeah i know running a, and it's brutal travel brutal travel. that's why it's they're all young guys out there right I think running clubs. I mean, look at what Patty Dodd done. What Patty Dodd has done with her club. I mean, that's impressive. And She's Holly a force. and yeah, and Holly and and Barb and Eric with Elite. Just, I mean, they've got such a nice little niche there. And I always say, I'm going to do the same thing down here, but I don't have the commitment that they do here. I had my little group for two years here in South Redondo and took a break this year because of you know working at MCU. But it's a lot of work to put in and grow that kind of a thing. And that's impressive what they've done and. You know, they get to be on that beach with kids. But I always think of that that graphic that you see. I don't know if you see it's an iceberg. And the little tiny bit of the iceberg is above water. And it says what my friends think I do. And it's hmm. X's and O's. And then what I actually do. And it's, you know, budgeting, recruiting, and all these different things. And I think any part of coaching, you know, unless you're just running your kid's AYSO team or something, <laughs> you're going to be doing all those other things all those pieces you might be fundraising you might be budgeting you might be doing all of that so when people say i want to be a coach i want to do what you do it's like well think about that because there's a lot that goes into it and and yeah. i you know someone asked me how do you feel successful as a coach i'm like part of that's when a kid tells me i want to be a coach I and mean, i just had dinner with carol hamilton welcher i don't know if you know her but i was yeah. her indoor college coach and talk about putting a lot of work into a kid, but to see her, you know, coaching and thriving and being a parent, like that's huge. Or I just, I just got a email and a t-shirt from a, a kid that I coached USA. And then she went to Tulane. I coached her there and she went on to, she's working for NASA now and she's a rocket cool. scientist. And, and, you know, those kind of little things like that's better than any, you know, NC2, well, maybe not, but it, that's equal with an NC2A championship mm -hmm. and that success and seeing those women and men that you've gotten to influence and how they've succeeded in their lives is pretty cool. Pretty yeah. cool. And you can, you know, it, it might not, you can win a championship and not necessarily have had a perfect influence or a good influence on people's lives, yeah. you yeah. know? So in my mind, that is more worth more than NCAA championship to see yeah. somebody who can go carry on, create a good family, create a good community around yeah. them and and make the world better versus a ring yeah i would choose the person first yeah i got to run a starlings program with anyone that's not familiar with starlings it's club volleyball for kids that can't really afford clubs so when byron <laughs> schumann called he's the founder of, the, of starlings at a national program he called me a couple of years ago gosh a couple like 20 and said, hey, we have this team. Maybe one of your Dominguez players would want to coach it. And I had been coaching at South Bay for all these, you know, rich kids. And I was like, what? Kids that are appreciative? I'll take it. And it was in 
Athens Park, which if you're not familiar with Athens Park in LA, it's where the Bloods were formed. Okay. And we were at a, it was an at-risk program for LA County probation where the probation officer would unlock the gym and let us in and lock us in the gym. And here I was driving my little beach volleyball Scirocco Volkswagen down to, to the hood and coaching these girls. And I, I ran it there for like two years and then we lost funding. So I took it to Dominguez. Then we were at like boys and girls club of that. And we just were moving around to try to help these girls. I did that for five or six years. And those are some of the girls that I still talk to mm. on a regular basis and what amazing strides they've made in their lives. And, and there's one or two that are coaches now, which is great. One that got a D one scholarship and just a really neat group. And I wouldn't trade that experience for, you know, any. So I think that running the gamut of, of coaching from a Starlings all the way up to a USA program, it's been really cool to see the different levels and, a coach is a coach, you know, you get to, what is it? We are influencers. You know, everyone likes <laughs> to use that word. I'm going to be an influencer. I'm like, really? Somebody just called me that. And I was like, oh, oh but I guess I am. You are because you're a coach. You are because you're a coach. Yeah. We're, we're the OG influencers. There you go. <laughs> there you go. One last question. What was the best choice you've made in your volleyball career between playing, coaching, administration what do you think has been the best choice good question it's a tough one being down by a few points five or six points and deciding to jump serve the heck out of the ball <laughs> in the manhattan <laughs> open when i had just had knee surgery my partner was sucking and we were playing the hawaiians and i'm like i really want to win this game and i just went out and just cracked some jump serves and ended up winning no i'm kidding though that was a good choice and you people need to remember that there's a time when people are going to hate on this. Bring on the hate mail, everybody. But there's a time uh, th that I call it's it's time to whip it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like this is the time where like you're in a slugfest and it's who's going to swing harder first and dictate the action. Yeah. And, you know, you got to start at some point, the strategy, the numbers, the like what we're doing, you got to come out with it oh, and yeah. say like, here we go. You know, you it's not always. Yeah. But, if you're willing to do it at the end, I think you're going to win more matches than you'll than you'll lose. Yeah. Okay. And your um, second best my choice. My second, I think the choice to finally leave my pro career and take the job at USAV. And I had no idea what that job. I mean, when I got hired there, the job was really just to manage the elite athletes that were trying to get to the Olympics. Mm. But then I kept saying, oh, there's a need for someone to do junior international. There's a need to have someone help with this and coaching and, and how it just blossomed into so many cool projects that I still, you know, I've seen other people get to run with after I left there. And yeah. I think that was a good choice. And it was hard. Every single day of it was so hard and blood, sweat and tears and 80 hour weeks at some point but i think that that was a really good choice because i can look back now and see you know how that's grown and how we now you know part of that was work went into getting nc2a volleyball to be a thing and coaching education and all these different things and a funding program for the athletes and so i and again getting to work with those mentors that i talked about whether it was doug beale or bill neville or or cecil renaud and just getting to be in a part of that world was really cool nice yeah that's great. Do you have any advice for anybody going forward? Don't hold back. Just go for it. You know, just like at that when you're down 10, 14 or whatever, just go for it. 
I say that though, and then there's always like the crazy person. It's like I'm gonna be a pro, and you're like, oh gosh, no, you're not. So let's go back. Let's dial that back. Communicate with people. I think that's really important. Get some people that that are honest with you. You know, I talked about my strength coach. He never fed me any crap. It was like just the straight. Who is gonna give it to you straight? Same thing with my with my boss at USA, Doug Beal. Let's get find that group of people that are gonna give you. They have your back and they're going to talk to you straight like here's how it is hey maybe it's time for you to you know hang up your bikini as my mom would always say that's her thing maybe she should hang up her bikini but the people that are going to give you those the straight up answers and just kind of have that little group of people that you know that you can go to when you need them i think that's important i love it Allie, thank you so much for your time yeah thanks Appreciate for having it. me Absolutely. And um, guys, if you ever want to reach out to Allie or if you want to uh, check out Beach Prospects, uh, all of her links are below. They are linked in the show notes. Uh, you can go and follow along with her career as she uh, continues to have a massive influence over the current and future of beach volleyball, everything. So go ahead and follow her. She's an important person you need to stay up to date with. And oh, if you ever want to go for a uh, you know, a beach accreditation uh, with USA Volleyball. You get the the pleasure of working with her and, and learning from her gigantic brain. <laughs> oh boy, I thought my head's not going to fit through the door now. <laughs> Great to catch up with you, Mark. All right, you have a good day. You too. Bye.